We looked last week at the manuscript history of the Gospel of Mark. Today we're going to look at the sources for Mark. Now, most of you have probably heard at least some of this before. Not Mark, Luke. Uh, some of this before I was thinking about Mark. Because, and there's a reason I was thinking about Mark. Because Mark was the first gospel written. All right? We're probably 99% certain, if not higher, that Mark was the first gospel written. Okay? Mark would have been written sometime in the late 60s or early 70s. When exactly is questionable. However, there seems to be very little, if any, understanding or knowledge of the temple in Jerusalem having been destroyed. There seems to be knowledge that it's under threat in the Gospel of Mark. In other words, the author of the Gospel seemed to know about the rebellion against Rome going on in Israel at the time. But there is no evidence that they knew that the temple had already been destroyed. Well, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD when Titus, who would eventually become Roman emperor, but at that time simply a general, uh, managed to uh, destroy or breach the walls of Jerusalem, and they burned the temple and destroyed the whole city. Okay, That happened in 70 AD. And so most, most scholarship will try to link the authorship of Mark to somewhere around that event. Sometimes they'll push it as late as 75 and say, well, news traveled slowly. Uh, no, not that slowly. Within a year, it would have been known all throughout the empire that the empire had defeated the Jewish rebellion. Okay? So, uh, in all likely, and especially given that Mark was written to uh, Gentile, mostly Gentile Christians in a metropolitan setting in either Asia Minor or Italy, uh, probably Italy, it seems more likely that they would have heard very early on. So, my thinking is, and many scholars tend to think, that Mark was written around 70, possibly before the destruction, probably before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, if you were to use that as your anchor point, you could go a couple of years earlier, like 68, and a couple of years later, like 72. I tend to like 68. And there really is no reason other than it sounds like a nice day. All right? So 68 to 72. Really can't really be much later than that. Maybe 75. It's certainly not going to be much later than that, period. We know that Mark was written first because Matthew and Luke are dependent upon the author of Matthew, two keys in it. Yeah, the author of Matthew and the author of Luke both used Mark as their chronological outline for their gospels. The framework within which they filled in a whole lot of more information. Both authors used Mark. They were familiar with it. They quoted it, sometimes conveying over even misspellings. <laughs> uh, and certainly turns of phrase. Uh, there were, there, as in any language, it's possible to say the same thing several different ways. And they tend to follow the exact same way that Mark does it. 
even when it tends to be a way that's kind of particular to um, uh, Greek as a second language type understanding of Greek, which is strange since Luke is obviously writing as a mother tongue writer, and he's writing with Greek as his primary language. He may know other languages, in fact, we know he knows other languages, but he's a native Greek speaker. The author of Mark probably was not. Okay? Um, if that's the case, then if we 68 to 72 as the authorship of Mark, well, that would mean that Matthew would have to be later, and so would Luke. Some people will set 75 to 80, or maybe even 85 for Matthew. And then they'll often do 80 to 90 for Luke. And John's completely, dis John's completely disconnected. No, leave that there. No, leave, it, leave it there. It's going up there in a minute. Uh, uh, John's completely disconnected from these, but John was written somewhere between 90 and 100. All right? Um, but we know that Matthew used Mark and Luke used Mark. Both also used another source, a sayings source. It's often called by German scholars Q. Who here knows German? Quella? Of source. Huh? <laughs> exactly. The source, the sayings source. And it, what it was was a collection of the sayings of Jesus. Jesus said, Jesus said, Jesus said, Jesus said. And, it, you know, the stuff in your Bibles that's usually read, that would be kind of what was in Q. All right? And stuff that's not found in Mark, but is found in Matthew and Luke. All right? If it's found in Matthew and in Luke, but not found in Mark, it's from another written source that we no longer have independently. That scientists or scholars or scholars of the New Testament actually are, have dubbed Q simply to give it a name. And it's a source, a sayings source of the teachings of Jesus. This actually predates Mark. We know that for multiple reasons, one of them being that it looks like Paul quoted from it on a few occasions. And if Paul did quote from it for on a few, few occasions, it has to predate 55 AD. Now, there are some scholars who've done a lot of work on Q who say that Q was actually written down in Aramaic in about 40 and translated into Greek in about 50 and therefore was available by the 70s and early 80s when Matthew and Luke, independent of each other, wrote their Gospels. Now, there are ways to prove this. One of the best ways to prove it is to actually illustrate it with a chart. This chart will make you go cross-eyed if you think you have to learn it. Just look at the colors to begin with. Now, what is this? Mark is right here. From chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through to the end in sections or segments representing chapters 
and versus. It's this kind of a peach color, salmon or whatever you want to call that color. That's the Gospel of Mark. Parallel to it on either side, you have Matthew and you have Luke. And everywhere where Matthew and Luke appear to be quoting from Mark, that passage is found shaded in the same color as Mark here. And you'll notice that both Matthew and Luke tend to quote Mark pretty much in the same order. So the same stories that Mark tells, sometimes in the very same wording that Mark uses, both of them use often in the exact same sequence. Because they're quoting from the same thing. Matthew's quoting from Mark. Luke's quoting from Mark. If you look at Matthew and Luke and compare and contrast everything together and throw out everything that's not in biblical Mark, what you have left is almost the complete gospel of Mark. The only thing that's missing from Matthew and Luke are these tiny little slivers that are green. In other words, everything in here that's green is not found in Matthew or Luke or both. 96% of Mark is reproduced, often word for word, in either Matthew, Luke, or both. That proves that they used Mark, the Gospel of Mark, to write their books. The other argument is, of course, that Matthew wrote first, then Luke wrote independent of Matthew, either or with Matthew, throwing out the stuff he didn't like from Matthew and adding the stuff that he wanted to put in, and then Mark comes along and edits out the stuff that disagrees between the two of them. That's far more complex and far less likely to have been what happened. Yes? This sounds like a doctoral committee. Helping. Huh? Sounds like a doctoral committee trying to help their students yes. write. <laughs> yes, exactly. There are interesting little things that are found in Mark and only in Mark. An example of one is where the young boy is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and when the disciples are running away in fear, he runs away too, and a guard grabs onto him by his loincloth, and it rips it off, and he runs away into the night naked. That boy is found nowhere else in Matthew or in Luke. And tradition is, is that's actually Mark writing himself into the story. <laughs> well, if it's John Mark, the son of the woman who owns the place for the upper room where the Last Supper occurred, it would kind of work out. And the age would be right. He would have been a young man, probably under the age of 12. So for the otherwise, what we know about John Mark and the Acts of the Apostles, that would fit. So then there's lots of other things that kind of correlate with that. But it's not found in either, other, either of the Gospels, but it is found in Mark. And there are other tiny little bits, not much, mostly unimportant. One story that's really important, we may look at that. Now, look what Luke, uh, let's look at what Matthew did. Matthew took the Gospel and he's Mark, of Mark and he spread it out. And then he started inserting stuff that he had from this sayings source and it's in blue uh, uh, yes it's found in blue everything that is the teachings of Jesus is found in blue and you see it's clumped into some large clumps like the Sermon on the Mount heavily clumped together 
and some other sections where the teachings of Jesus are heavily clumped together. All right? And then you see there's stuff here that's in white. That's stuff that's unique to Matthew. Stuff that's found only in the Gospel of Matthew, not found in Mark, and not found in Luke. Not found in John. It's only found in Matthew. The stuff that's white. The birth narratives. A few other things regards a few teachings of Jesus and a couple of parables, that kind of stuff. A few other storables, like the, the, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. It's unique to Matthew. Um, the healing of the two blind men, unique to Matthew. Um, the parable of the ten virgins, unique to Matthew. So you've got some things that are unique to Matthew. Some of them are rather important teachings. They're in white. Until you get down here to the end, then the post-resurrection appearances are all in white. So you've got the stuff in white, unique to Matthew. The stuff in blue is from the same source. And the stuff that's peach comes from Mark. Now, look at Luke. Luke did it similarly. He spread Mark out pretty much in the same order, but differently weighted. He then took the stuff that's from Q, the blue stuff, and he distributed it more evenly throughout his gospel. Instead of clumping it heavily together, he spreads it out. So the Sermon on the Mount is a, a lot briefer, and its content is actually spread out over far more chapters than it is found in Matthew. And pieces of it are actually spread way further down the line. Everything that's in yellow is unique to Luke. So the stuff that we've already read, all that stuff is unique to Luke, found nowhere else. The stuff about Zechariah, Elizabeth, unique to Luke. The stuff about the um, Annunciation unto Mary, Unique to Luke. All that stuff is unique to Luke. It's in yellow. Well, so you nobody, nobody messed with Luke stuff, then, did Huh? Nobody. Well, other people. From Luke. Other people have taken things from Luke okay. later on, but not in the Bible. Okay. Not in the Bible. So Mark wrote first. Then Matthew and Luke wrote independent of each other, using Mark as their outline and the saying source that they used similarly but differently. Similarly, in that they quoted from it often verbatim, like they quoted from Mark, but differently in that they frequently distributed the sayings to other places in the gospel chronologically than the other one did. Luke spreading them out more. Matthew clumping them together more. All right? One of the indicators that they're quoting from a written document, you know, the Q saying source, a written document, one of the indicators is that not only do they quote exactly many of these teachings, many of these sayings of Jesus, but even when they group them differently, the general order of them tends to be the same. The sequence in which the sayings occur follow a very similar pattern. They may be clumped differently, but their sequence is very similar, which is what you would expect if they're both quoting from a written document that has the teachings of Jesus in a specific order. All right? You can then compare Luke and Matthew side by side if you wanted to do that more closely. Everything that we know to be in Q, we have gotten by comparing and contrasting Matthew and Luke together and throwing out everything that's not in Mark and everything that's 
not in the other. And what's left is Q, with some exceptions. There are some things that are Q that are unique to Matthew. There are some things that are in Q that are unique to Luke. But we don't know which ones those are in some cases. But if it's a saying source, it's a parable of some kind. And there are examples. Like good arguments can be made for the parable of the hidden virgins being in Q, even though Luke doesn't quote it. Likewise, it's possible that the story of the prodigal son, which is unique to Luke, might have also been in Q. But Matthew, for whatever reason, decided not to use it. Alright. Now, we're going to be reading Luke. In fact, we've already started reading Luke. An objective is to read it without allowing Matthew, especially, to interfere. It's going to be very tempting to harmonize Matthew to Luke. I want to encourage us to not do that. There's a time and place to do that. But right now, we're wanting to read Luke for what Luke has to say. Luke's approach, Luke, Luke's objective, Luke's picture of Jesus, how he interpreted Jesus. We want to pay attention to that. It's different than how Matthew did. Luke is a Gentile writer. He's writing to a Gentile Christian audience. Matthew is a Jewish Christian writer writing to a Jewish Christian audience. That's a very important distinction. Their presuppositions, their attitudes are all going to be very different. And hence their interpretation of who Jesus is and was is also going to differ somewhat. And sometimes the differences in how they deal with the teachings of Jesus Reflect that. And we will on occasion look at that. For instance, in Matthew, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In Luke, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Hmm, interesting. Now, did Jesus say both? The traditional attempt to harmonize them would say Jesus said both. But if both come from Q then which is more likely to have been original? Poor. Poor, the simpler version. <clears throat> Only that which is interpreted is likely to be added. So, blessed is the poor in, are the poor in spirit. We can see how that comes about. Because you're trying to apply this to their situation where they are. Yes, many of the people who are hearing this in that Matthian community are very poor, but but they're wanting to deal more with the spirituality of the situation. So blessed are the poor in spirit. And, and there might be reasons for that. Whereas in Luke, for whatever reason, he's also writing to people, many of whom are very poor. For whatever reason, probably due to a lack of the rabbinic tradition in the Gentile Christian church, he doesn't spin it the same way. He simply says, blessed are the poor. All right? So, on occasion, we will glance at how Matthew used something. But for the most part, we're going to let Luke speak for Luke. All right? This could be very complex. I spent a year and a half with a congregation, a group of 20 wonderful people who stuck with me for a year and a half, <laughs> with, you know, gaps and breaks and time off. But uh, about 84 sessions doing the Synoptic Gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke in parallel. 
with Mark as the basic outline. It's fascinating. And it proved this to me. That's where the chart comes from. And it proved this to me. That Mark was primary, was written first, and that Matthew and Luke both used another document, a written document, to write their Gospels. And they also used material that was unique to them in their location. Some of it oral, some of it written. We don't really know the details there because we can't, we don't have anything to compare and contrast it to. But the stuff that's unique to Matthew, the stuff that, that's unique to Luke, had its source. You can speculate about its source all you want. Um, that's more difficult to do. But uh, they also use those types of materials. Um, but we're going to be focusing on Luke. And we will look at Luke's use of Mark and uh, see how he sometimes changes the order of sequence of events when he doesn't like how Mark did it. One little remark about Mark. It looks like it's a chrono chronological story of the life of Jesus. But it's really not. It's arranged along a thematic scheme. Yes, there is a chronology. Jesus gets baptized. Jesus practices ministry. Jesus gets arrested. Jesus gets killed. Okay, that's chronolo chronological and probably correct. But all of the specifics of Jesus did this here and here and here and here and went to this side of the Sea of Capernaum and went across to the other side and came back and went across and went here and went there and where various things occurred seems to be thematically arranged, not necessarily chronologically or geographically arranged. Matthew and Luke kind of well, Matthew seems to be more aware of it than Luke. If the author of Matthew is a Jewish Christian living in Antioch, part of the Jewish diaspora out of Jerusalem, they were thrown out in the 70s, right after the destruction of the temple, the Jews were thrown out of Palestine. They couldn't get any closer to Damascus or possibly the northern regions of Galilee. Um, and they're, So they're living in exile. They're going to have a memory of what was where around the Sea of Galilee. That's not going to be a problem. Luke... Luke's, Luke's from Syria, yeah, but he's probably never been there. And if he has, it's only been for a short period of time, and he's not really very familiar with the geography. And that's obvious when you read Luke, if you pay attention to the geography. And on occasion, we will do that. It's less important than paying attention to the story and what it's teaching us, but it's sometimes fun to see. Um, any, oh God, oh, this, is, this is mean. I just gave you an introduction to synoptic uh, the synoptic study of the Bible called the synoptic problem. It usually takes two semesters in seminary. Any questions? <laughs> You're probably spinning right now. I've prepared a chart that kind of describes what I talked about here much better, along with some assumptions that I tend to make and some opinions that I tend to hold. We won't be referring to this chart much, but I'm going to leave it up for today. So you can kind of look at it. If you want to come up and take a close look, there are lots of verse notifications telling you what is what. And it's just, I, I, I've spent hours examining this thing. <laughs> it was actually put together by a fellow by the name of Barr back in the early to mid 20th century. Um, it was his doctoral dissertation. I have the book that it's based on. Uh, I wanted to use it, so I digitized a version of it. And I use it to teach from. It's a very important resource. Lots of people use it these days when they're teaching. 
the Synoptic Gospels. And it's useful, but it's more of an oddity for our class, so we won't be paying close attention to it. But I'll leave it up for today if you want to take a look. The uh, sequence of authorship of the Synoptic Gospels chart called The Relationship Between Mark, Matthew, and Luke. I've got it here for you. I'll take one and pass it along. This describes what I just put up on the board there. You'll see I kind of put up at the very top the oral teachings of Jesus and events and some teachings, crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus, pattern or groupings with some rough dates for those events. I drew some assumptions like the saying source was in Greek in 50 and written in Aramaic in the 30s and, of course, based on the oral teachings of Jesus from 27 to 30. You got M, the material unique to Matthew on the far left. You got L, the material unique to Luke on the far right. And then you see there's Mark. And I followed the basic, uh, some of the basic understanding that used to be pretty common back in the, uh, by the way, this stuff is not new. This stuff was the first to come up with back in the 1700s. An analysis of the Synoptic Gospels was first produced in the 1700s, which made this initial claim about the documentary hypothesis as to how it came about with Mark being first. But I drew some of the material from some of those teachings. Is it, do we know for a fact that you know, Papias was right about some of this stuff, as you can read in here, and we'll talk about later if you're interested? We don't know. But he was a heck of a lot closer to the events than we are. He was writing in the middle, early middle part of the second century, when our first fragments of the Gospels come from. And, um, so he was a lot, and he claims that he was taught by John. So he claims to actually have known a disciple that was taught by one, and knew Polycarp and several of the other early church uh, fathers, movers, and shakers that uh, were closer to the events than than we are. So we don't, but we don't really know. We know that some of the things don't really match with what Papias said, but you can kind of see how they would match if you make certain assumptions. We can talk about that later, but I've written all that up here. And you can take a look at it and read it. But this gives basically the chart that I put on that blackboard or marker board, but clearer, all right? <laughs> Easier to understand. Okay, are there any questions on that before we dive back into Luke? You should note that even though your Bible says the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Luke, the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to John, those titles were not in the earliest copies. We know that because in 125 and 150, people were asking the question, who wrote these things? Which required someone like Bishop Papias of Heriopolis to give an answer. Well, Mark wrote Mark or the short gospel that's the favorite gospel of Rome. The physician Luke wrote the gospel that's the favorite gospel of Ephesus. Matthew, the disciple, wrote the gospel that's the favorite gospel of Antioch. And John, who was my teacher, wrote this long gospel that's very different from the other gospels and more spiritual. Um, he, John wrote that one. So you can, you can argue one way or another. and. I hold a media position or a medium position between those who claim that Papius was absolutely right on everything he said and those who say that there's, there are elements of truth in what he wrote. 
Bishop Papias, Bishop of Hierapolis, was a very important writer in the first half of the second century. And we have fragments of what he wrote, more now than we did just 20 years ago. And we know what he had to say about the authorship of the Gospels. And to some extent, it matches what we know to be true. In other extents, there seem to be problems. For instance, he said that Matthew wrote his Gospel in Aramaic. Mm -hmm. We know Matthew's Gospel, the one in our Bibles, isn't written in Aramaic originally. It was written in Greek originally. Because Mark was written in Greek originally, and Matthew uses Mark. But we know that the saying source was originally written in Aramaic, early. An analysis of what was in the saying source has told, told scholars who've looked at it over the years that it, it evolved over a fairly short period of time from within just a few years of the death and resurrection of Jesus up until it was translated into Greek by about 50, about the, by about the time that Paul was in ministry. And so it, it causes some scholars to say, and there, there's a Dutch scholar who, who first made this suggestion over 30 years ago, and it's becoming more popular now, is this idea that what Papias was actually referring to isn't the canonical gospel, although he thought it was. What he had been told, Matthew being the author of a gospel, actually was the saying source that he wrote. That Matthew, being present, being literate, was the one who wrote down the sayings of Jesus in Aramaic. And that it then, because the gospel in the Bible that we call Matthew uses it so in large clumps, see all that blue all clumped together, mm -hmm. that's Q. Well, it has caused some people to suggest that, well, they connected the gospel in the Bible with Matthew because that gospel uses Q most extensively in huge clumps. It's an interesting argument. I think there might be something in it. I'm not entirely sure. Um, there is some fascinating arguments that can be made uh, about uh, the sourcing of Mark and was Mark written soon after the death of Peter? Uh, possibly. It, the tradition is, is that it was written based on the teachings of Peter. And that tradition actually seems to hold out if you look at the content of Mark and you realize that it's the gospel that presents Peter in the least favorable light. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough. Uh, and that Matthew and Luke tend to whitewash him a little bit. That's, and that's just fascinating. Um, Peter's uh, guilt complex is probably functioning there. So he preached about the life and ministry of Jesus, and then Mark writes it down after his death, ordering it as he thought best thematically. All right? That would work. Um, I've written an outline that I may present, I may give you all to look at next time. It's a bunch of pages long, which gives reasons why the traditional identifications that I placed in here for the authorship of the Gospels being uh, more likely than not why I believe them. Well, we can talk about that later. Um, I didn't want to really want to go this long today. I wanted to only go half an hour. But um, it's uh, some fascinating stuff, how we got our Gospels. It's fascinating stuff. We're going to be focusing on Luke. We've already read through verse 38 of chapter 1. So let's pick it up from there. We've had the Annunciation unto Mary. Mary ended it with saying, Here I am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. 
Luke chapter 1, verse 39. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, the, the, the Judean town in the hill country, well, the hill country in a Judean town is going to be the hill country around Jerusalem. Judea is in the south. Galilee, where she was staying in Nazareth, is in the north. And so she makes, with haste, to go down there. Um, in those days, it's the same basic phrasing that is found earlier on when it talks about uh, uh, Zechariah going home and Elizabeth uh, conceiving. It, 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 it's, it's pretty quickly. It's, it, it, it could be after a little bit of time, but it's not, she's not going to dawdle around for a while. And especially since she's now pregnant, she better not wait too long to make this very long, hazardous trip all the way south to Judea, to the areas around Jerusalem, to where Zechariah lived in, an, in a town called Ian Karim, just outside, well, now it's a suburb of Jerusalem, but back then there would have been a greater distance. Um, made the trip down where she enters the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb. I have no earthly idea what that would be like. Can, can one of you who's actually had a, a wonderful baby living inside of you tell me what that's like? You just feel it. Kick. I felt a baby. I, I've held, placed my hand on a tummy and felt a baby inside kick. And the first thing that came to my mind when I felt that was that scene in the movie Alien when the, when the, when the creature decides to eat its way out. <laughs> and I had a woman tell me that it's not unlike that when, they, when the birth occurs. <laughs> but, um, but I, you know, I've seen the little foot. I mean, it, it's strange to see that you can actually see that. But, but what's that like to have a baby kick or leap inside? Well, the first movement doesn't feel like a kick or a leap. Uh, more like butterfly. It's a butterfly. Yeah. yeah. It is. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. But later on? No. Big well, swim. Well. By six months? <laughs> Nine yeah. pounds later? Uh -huh. Well, Mom says that one time I rolled over inside of her and it probably, and she says she thought she was going to vomit. It. She thought, <laughs> <laughs> She said I was doing somersaults inside her. <laughs> she was getting dizzy. Yeah, well, yeah, maybe. I don't know. But, uh, but I just, it's, to me, that's an amazing thing. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what's being described mm -hmm. here. But you don't feel that until about the fourth or fifth month. Well, this is the sixth month. This is the sixth month. Elizabeth's six months in now. Okay. So that, that would be mm -hmm. something that would happen, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Wow. Coincidence? Well, that's not what it says. Let's read it. <laughs> when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Can, can children inside hear what's going on outside? Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. Of course they can. They hear music. Absolutely. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now, wait a minute. That sounds familiar to me. That sounds familiar to me. Back here in the gospel, when, when the angel Gabriel comes in verse 28, he says, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. That 
kind of reminds me of Hail Mary, full of, full of grace, the Lord is with you. And then we see Elizabeth's response or statement, blessed are you among women and blessed, blessed is the fruit of your womb. When I was little, I thought that was the fruit of the loom. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, and, and blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. So that first half mm -hmm. of what is known as the Hail Mary, or the, which is usually said within the rosary of the Roman Catholic Church, is biblical. Imagine that. Hmm. Blessed are you among women. Anybody have a slightly different rendering there? Does everybody say blessed are you among women? Favored. Favored. Favored by God. Favored by God. Yeah, you are favored by God above, yeah. all, above all other women. You are favored by God above all other women. Mm -hmm. And what does it say in the next uh, phrase there? And your child is destined for God's mightiest praise. Repeat well, that. Read that. Read that again. Um, read the whole verse. Okay. She gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, You are favored by God above all other women, and your child is destined for God's mightiest praise. What an honor this is that the mother of my Lord should visit me. When you come in and greeted me, the instant I heard your voice, my baby moved in me for joy. You believed that God would do what he said. That is why he has given you this wonderful blessing. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's a. Uh, uh, I was. <laughs> wow, what translation are you using? Yeah. I think it's great. Uh, it's the. It's amplified. No. Same old Bible. The Life Application Bible. Well, that's that's the edition, but what's the translation? The, the Living Bible. The Living. That's the Living Bible. That's called a paraphrastic translation. That means they've taken the passage and they've done more than translate, they've also interpreted it. Now every translation is an interpretation, but this is really expanded. It's more like a commentary, nothing wrong with it. That's actually okay. quite neat. I just, I think it's, I thought that was fascinating how it read. Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb le leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed. Blessed is she who believed. Yeah, based on faith. It's faithed. Blessed is she who faithed, exercised faith, that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. Now, I'm, wait a minute now. She's just arrived. And she says, blessed is she, that's Mary, who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. How does Elizabeth know this? How does Elizabeth know what was said to her by the angel of the Lord back earlier in the chapter? She wasn't there. They hadn't had a conversation yet. She just got there. She said, I got a child doing somersaults inside of her. It, it tells us where it says she is filled with the Holy Spirit. She's essentially given like a prophecy almost. God has revealed to her that, that Mary has already received a promise and that Mary has believed it. Because that's how I read that. I see some wonderful cookies out there. Can I have one? Yeah. <laughs> I can't. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, just 
Put one on a. Mine is very short. It says, yes. in keeping with the Lucan emphasis upon women. <laughs> or, I'm sorry, repeat that, Mary. In keeping with the Lucan emphasis upon women, Mary greets only Elizabeth within the house of Zechariah and Elizabeth. So I guess he'd gone back to work. Well, he may have been at work. It's hard to say. He couldn't talk. He wasn't talk yet. The baby hadn't been born yet. He can't. He couldn't talk. Yes. Brain food. Wow. Now look at Mary's response, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. We're reading what's known in the history of the liturgy of the church as the Magnificat, a beautiful song that Mary is essentially proclaiming now. Um, it actually is it, it's an amazing song. It's, um, it's based largely on Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 through 10. Let's finish it and go take a look at that, okay? Let's just finish this and then we'll take a look at that. We're studying Samuel in Sunday school. Uh -huh. And so uh, Sunday school is Samuel. And then <laughs> here is Luke, and I'm, re I'm seeing some similarities. <laughs> His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown the strength of his arm, with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has, look, look, he has, look, look that's not what normally happens in the world, friends. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. I mean, it's not some princess of the court that is carrying this child. It's a lowly girl of no power. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. The rich don't normally go away empty, friends. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. This song has been used in the history of the church as um, it's called a canticle, it's the Magnificant. It's used in lots of worship settings. We used it in worship. I think it was the Sunday before Christmas here. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful proclamation. But let's take a look at what it's based on. 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 through 10. Well, lots of ways to understand the use of this material. It, um, one interesting interpretation is that she's simply quoting, which would not be uncommon. In fact, it would be a very good thing for a Jewish girl to do, to quote something that's similar to her own situation that she knows from Scripture. And it's one of those things that, quite frankly, would be something that a young Jewish, Jewish girl would be versed in. It's not, not hard to believe. Chapter 2, verse 1, 1 Samuel. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength 
is exalted in my God. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in my victory. There is no holy one like the Lord, no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let, let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble gird on in strength. You hear the echoes that are being, now she's drawing from this, she's interpreting it, she's applying it for herself. I mean, here, right there, you've got, he is, um, he has shown the strength of his arm, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, he has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. Talk no more, verse 3 of Samuel chapter 2, talk no more, uh, so very proudly, let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by his action, by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble gird on strength. Those, verse 5, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry are fat with spoil. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. I mean, she's clearly quoting, interpreting, applying to herself the song of Hannah. The Lord, look at that. The, the barren, verse, the second half of verse 5, the barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. I mean, Elizabeth is the baron. Mm -hmm. hmm. The Lord, and in a sense, Mary is too, but she's now, but they're both with child. One, because she was barren and too old. The other, well, too young. But they're both now with child. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low, he also exalts. He rises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. She keeps going, but let's pause there. What do you think? Powerful, isn't it? Notice she's using, she's using this. Now, scholars have said, many scholars say, well, this is the author of Luke taking the song of Hannah and applying it to Mary. And that's certainly a possibility. You know, it, it could be the author's uh, uh, understanding of what this must have been like for Mary. That's a possibility. I'm sure, sure it's a possibility. But is it so unlikely that a Jewish girl would look to Hannah as an example for what she herself is feeling right now. It's not. It's not. So if it's Luke crafting this, he's crafting it very much in character with what a Jewish girl of her character or nature, background, would be feeling, experiencing. Hmm. According to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants, Forever. So, essentially, this whole event, 
the conception of Elizabeth, now Mary's conception of Jesus, is all in accord with God's revelation and the promise that God made to their ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Luke, a Gentile writing to a Gentile audience, keep that in mind, is orienting and placing this entire event within the context of the Hebraic faith, the Hebrew people, the Jewish faith. Interesting. To be a Gentile author writing to a Gentile Christian church and yet he's placing this event and going out of his way to place this event within the complete context of the Jewish faith. Not drawing a distinction from it. Not trying to make it more palatable to non-Jews but go making every effort to make sure that it's rooted in the Jewish experience. That's fascinating. It's also clever. It's extremely clever. <laughs> How do you understand that? Well, he's, he's uh, trying to help the Gentiles to be more appreciative of the Jewish contribution. To be able to understand who Jesus was and is, one must be willing to face the Hebraic covenant, the relationship that God had with God's people, the relationship that the people had with each other, and with God. And it was a challenge because, I'm going to tell you something, racism isn't anything new. Gentiles hated Jews, and Jews hated Gentiles. The Jews were the chosen people. Well, yeah, and, and they could become arrogant about that, and the Gentiles didn't like it. The Gentiles thought they were more important than the Jews. Those Jews, are, they're stinky. They don't eat things we eat. They don't like pork. Ooh, you can't trust anybody who doesn't eat bacon. I mean, come on. You just can't. And, and, and even worse, in the empire, they refused to make sacrifice to the emperor. That was your litmus test, or whether or not you could be trusted in the empire, is if you were willing to make a sacrifice to the emperor, pay your imperial tax by going to the imperial temple and making sacrifice to the emperor. Now the Jews had, did get an exemption. They got an exemption. They had to pay double tax, but they didn't have to burn incense to the emperor because of their religion did not allow for multiple deities. Now keep in mind, there were other people of religion in the empire who only had one deity. But there were no other people in the empire at the time who didn't allow the recognition of other deities. That sounds strange. Um, Judaism began, monotheism in Judaism began with saying, we have one God, Yahweh. Doesn't necessarily deny the existence of other gods. In fact, you have echoes in the Old Testament that seem to indicate that they recognized that there were other deities. They were inferior to Yahweh. And Yahweh was their god, their tribal god. All right. Over time, as Judaism evolved and developed in, in, in sophistication and philosophy, they became to understand that there were no other deities. There was only one deity, Yahweh. All the other deities were at worst demons or nothing. Well, 
they were unusual in that respect because other religions that only had one deity still recognized the either validity of the existence of other deities, just they weren't their deities, or said it doesn't really matter, go ahead and make sacrifice to the emperor, it doesn't really matter, it's just a way of saying that you're loyal to the empire. Judaism wouldn't allow that. Now keep in mind, by this point in time, by the 80s AD, Christianity still uh, struggling to be a sect or denomination of Judaism was having to depend upon the Jewish exemption to keep from making sacrifice to the emperor. For Jewish Christians it wasn't a problem. They could lean back on their Judaism and say, well I'm a Jew. I get the Jewish exemption. But what if you're a Gentile, never was a Jew, and suddenly you become a Christian and you're therefore barred from making sacrifice to the emperor and it comes time to pay your tax to the imperial uh, cult. You can't claim the exemption and pay double taxes. You've got to go in there and burn incense to the emperor. Christianity, therefore, was losing its exemption. After the destruction of the Second Temple for Judaism to survive, they had to get rid of all the multiple denominations that existed within their faith. No longer could you have Sadducees and Essenes and Zealots and Pharisees and all the various kinds of Jews that there were. You can only have one. And Phariseeism went one out. It became the one you had to become. And there was no room for a messianic Judaism like Christianity. And so they were being pushed out of the synagogues and pushed out of the faith. And without Judaism to fall back upon, they didn't have that exemption. And all these Gentiles were in a real difficult situation. And many of them were being persecuted. Many of the early persecutions against the church in the 80s and 90s AD were predicated upon the fact that these Gentile Christians were refusing to make sacrifice to the emperor. Therefore, they were considered to be disloyal to the empire. All right? Well, that's interesting to note. In the midst of that context, Luke is trying to say, were part of the Abrahamic of the Hebrew covenant relationship. This is part of what was promised to Abraham. We have a right to make the claim for the Jewish exemption because our Messiah, our leader, our Lord is Yeshua and the God and Father, Yahweh. Of course we should get the exemption on the same ground that the Jews should. He's actually making that claim, friends. That's part of what's behind this. That's what I meant to say. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also a stumbling block because there are plenty of Gentiles who find that nauseating yeah. and don't want to have anything to do with it. They don't like Judaism. They don't like Jews. They'll accept Christianity, but they're not going to accept the Judaism part. By 150 AD, there was a, a Christian named Marcion who was the person to first establish a New Testament. He took the letters of Paul and took the Gospel of Luke, chopped out all the Jewish stuff and created the first New Testament <laughs> and said, don't pay any attention to the Hebrew Bible, ignore that stuff, just use this. And 150 AD, that's what he did. Now he did it in a bad place. He did it in Rome where the favorite Gospel was not Luke, it was Mark. And therefore, he got himself in trouble with the political powers of the church in Rome at that time. And as a result, he got thrown out and declared a heretic. But also as a result, the church in about 150 to 175 AD said, we need to have our own scriptures in addition to the Hebrew Bible. And the four Gospels and the letters of Paul and the letters of Peter 
ended up becoming the first New Testament by about 175 AD. And then it grew over time. But, um, but, it, but it was in the mix in the context of, on the one hand, Gentiles finding Judaism icky and didn't want to have anything to do with it, and yet it's right here in this most Gentile of Gospels. At the same time, we have the church saying, we ought to have a right to have the Jewish exemption about not having to burn and worship the emperor. We're good, loyal citizens of the empire. Paul's a good, loyal citizen of the empire. But we're not going to burn incense to the emperor. We'll pay taxes, but we won't burn incense. Probably hmm. what portion of the population would have been the Jews and the Gentiles? I, I mean, out, out of the full... Of the church or period? P period of this... Well, Judaism was very a, 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 very, yeah, a very small minority. In the eastern half of the Roman Empire, well, if you get over into Palestine uh, and Syria and, and this far eastern end of what's Asia Minor, you're, you're gonna, it, it becomes a higher percentage. But all across the empire, 5% at most, probably lower, 2 to 3%. It's probably what you're looking at, and, and very diffused as you get further away. There were Jews all over the empire. Um, there, there was a synagogue in Londonium, England, in the second century. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, it's, not, it's not uncommon. Paul went to Rome originally. He wanted to go to Rome so that they could send him on to Spain. Well, there's a reason why he would do that, not instead of just going there directly. It's because the empire was split into two halves. The eastern half, they spoke Greek. All the intellectuals in the empire spoke Greek. But in the west, the common language of everybody was Latin. And Luke, uh, Paul probably didn't know Latin, or he knew it very poorly at best. So he went to Rome, which is the capital of the empire, where all the intellectuals would know Greek, to either learn Latin or to find someone to go with him to translate for him mm -hmm. when he went to spread the gospel in Spain. That's the reason why he originally wanted to go to Rome. So they could then send him on to Spain. All right? So Judy, and, and he would have been, he would have found places he could have, he, he could have had sanctuary and places to live with Jews throughout the entire Mediterranean Sea Basin. The empire was spread throughout the entire Mediterranean Sea Basin and, and there were Jews all over the place. But they were not a high density population group. They were a minority. There were more of them in the east, of course, but they were a minority throughout the empire and, a, and an oppressed minority. And one of the reasons why they were heavily oppressed is because they continually revolted against the empire. There's an old, there's an old Roman joke that says the Jews are always revolting because they are revolting. I mean, period. I mean, literally, they are revolting because they revolt. <laughs> it works in English, actually. It works really great in Latin. But the, but the, the Jews are revolting, and it, it has a double meaning to it. <laughs> because they, 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 they engaged in insurrections on multiple occasions. The big one where the, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD was not the last. There were a couple of more big ones until they just decided, okay, that's it. You can't live anywhere in the Palestinian area ever again and get away. And that's called a diaspora. Well, they already started earlier, but uh, anyway. Um, Mary remained, verse 56, chapter 1. Mary remained with her about three months. Ooh. If she goes down in the sixth month, seventh, eighth, Nice. She stayed until John was born. 
probably to come and help in midwife and learn about what it means to give birth. That could very well be the case. That was a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't know. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it might have been. I don't, I don't know. Uh, um, so, but she stays for three months, for about three months. That give and take as to about how long it was before she went down and all. Uh, he, about three months, around that period of time. But in other words, until Elizabeth gave birth. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown his great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. It's almost as if uh, they didn't know about it until then. Kind of implied, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Like, they, they didn't want to tempt fate. I mean, here's a very, 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 very late pregnancy. And they don't have high technology or anything like that. So, you know, you're not used to someone in, who's past menopause <laughs> giving birth. So, um, you know, they didn't want to tempt it. But uh, here she is. She does give birth. The Lord has shown great mercy for, uh, to her, and they rejoiced with her. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And when they were going to name him Zechariah after his father, but his mother said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, None of your relatives has this name. Then they began motioning to his father to find out what name he wanted to give him. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And all of them were amazed. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue freed, and he began to speak, praising God. Fear came over all the neighbors, and all these things were talked about throughout the entire hill country of Judea. All who heard them pondered them and said, What then will this child become? For indeed the hand of the Lord was with him. Wow. Wow. So now Zechariah is speaking again. So now he gets a song. I mean, Mary had a song earlier. Uh, we had Elizabeth having this wonderful proclamation earlier. And somehow she knows that he's to be named John. Interesting. Maybe they had conversation. Well, maybe he had written. Zechariah had written. We don't know. But now we have another song. Does anybody have a note which tells us where this, uh, what this song reflects? The song of Zechariah? The Benedictus, so uh, from the first word of the Latin translation, a mighty savior, one who will bring salvation. See Psalm 18, 1 through 3, Psalm 92, verses 10 through 11, Psalm 132, verses 17 and 18. That's interesting. A whole bunch of psalms knitted together. But not only that, Malachi 4, 5. Huh. Huh. You'll find as we read through both Acts and Luke, you will find, and this is also true in Paul, that they had no trouble pulling from multiple places, for example, in the Psalms or in Isaiah, and knitting them together as if they're one thing. They'll pull an idea from anywhere that sounds good. That's, by the way, very rabbinic in its approach to proclaiming um, 
uh, preaching and proclaiming the word of God. That's a very, it's, it's, a, it's one of those devices that was very common in that day. Look what he says. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. You could go back and follow those, those verses I gave and see how the author here, or possibly Zechariah, is pulling from these psalms. And it's not something that someone like Zechariah, who was a priest of the people, is, he's, he's going to be very familiar with these psalms. The psalms were prayed and they were sung. They were the, 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 the liturgy of the people. So it's not uncommon, not surprising that he would want to pull from them. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Remember, Judaism is under oppression from the empire, so that really applies to them. Jewish uh, uh, Gentile Christians are under oppression from the empire. It also applies for them. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant. Again, remember from what, what the, the, applying the song of Hannah through Elizabeth establishes the char this characteristic of this, of this faith, of this, of this Christian affirmation deeply within the Hebraic roots. Well, here we have it again. Thus he has shown his mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now, as of this point, who's he talking about? Is he talking about John? Look what it says earlier. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David. He's talking about a baby who hasn't been born yet. Not about John. He now gets to John. And you, child, well, verse 76, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, the one that was referenced in this earlier verse. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Wow. He's pulling here from many psalms. He's piecing them together. Again, um, Psalm 18, verses 1 through 3. Psalm 92, verses 10 through 11. Psalm 132, <clears throat> verses 17 and 18, and Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. He's pulling from the, some of the, the, the beautiful worship liturgy, some of the beautiful wisdom liturgy, uh, literature and liturgy of the Hebrew people. And he's framing this proclamation of the Messiah and this proclamation of the forerunner in highly Hebraic terms. We said this was a, an attempt to do this both to, to appeal to, to the, the right to claim the exemption 
It's also an attempt to, to situate it and to help the, the Gentile Christians to know the roots and so they can understand Jesus better. That's true. It's also an appeal to Jews and Jewish Christians, to realize, but especially to Jews, not to kick the Gentiles out of the, out of the synagogues and to be welcoming. And maybe they then will also turn and recognize in Jesus the Messiah. This is not some foreign religion. This is part and parcel of what you already believe. So there's multiple things going on here. And we can see that right here in this song of Zechariah. The child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day he appeared publicly to Israel. Questions? Could have taken more time and looked in detail at each one of these things a little more like we did with Hannah, gone to the Psalms themselves and seen how how they how this imagery was pieced together, but it does flow beautifully on its own. It, it really does. And again, it, it's either the the craftsmanship of the author of the gospel could very well be, but the person who's doing this is someone who is versed in Hebrew scripture. He's a priest of the community. It's not, and it's the kind of thing that they would often do. You have been listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of the First United Methodist Church in Commerce, Texas, and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2015 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at First United Methodist Church, 1709 Highway 24, Commerce, Texas, 75428. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.